Good morning. I'm Emily Schultz. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And if you've been following along with us the past couple weeks, we've been exploring the book of Numbers. Numbers outlines the people of Israel's time in the wilderness of Sinai between being rescued by God from slavery in Egypt and them getting to enter the promised land. We've seen throughout the book God's unwavering desire to bless his people, even though the people have a propensity to disobey God and forget the amazing things that he's done for them. God wants his people to obey, and he promises to bless them if they do. But even when they fail, he is still faithful. God is faithful to his people and to his promises, including the promises that he made to Israel's forefather, Abraham. God had promised to give Abraham descendants and a covenant relationship, and those he's fulfilled already. But God had also promised to give him land. The book of Numbers is very focused on this promise of land. After almost 40 years of wandering in the wilderness from chapter 20 on, we see the people's movement towards the promised land come to the forefront once again. Today, we're going to look at one more story from Numbers. It's three chapters long, but it's really fascinating. So we're going to take our time and walk through it slowly, and that's all we're doing today. So as Israel is beginning their conquest of the people groups who are blocking their entrance to the land God promised them, we read this story where God's promises to Israel are reaffirmed, but by an extremely unlikely source. Let's read Numbers chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pithor, near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. The Israelites are camped across the Jordan River from the military fort of Jericho. They're marching towards the promised land and they've just defeated the Amorites but they had skirted past the kingdoms of Edom and Moab on their way. And if you read this story in our Bible reading plan this past week, it may have felt confusing or jarring because it pops up out of the blue. If you found yourself thinking, who are these people? What's happening? That would be totally understandable because as this chapter opens, we see a major perspective shift in the storytelling. For chapters 22 through 24, the Israelites are merely background characters. These three chapters give us a peek into what Israel's enemies are up to during this time. I think these chapters make a lot more sense when you take a minute to identify and get straight in your mind who the main players are, and if you try to picture this story um, as it unfolds. So the opening scene begins with Balak, the king of Moab, and he's teaming up with the leaders of the Midianites, which are another neighboring people group, and they're trying to think of a plan that will prevent them from becoming Israel's next target. The plan they cook up is to seek out the help of a man named Balaam. Balaam was from Pithor, which is way up in northern Mesopotamia, or what's now northern Syria. And it can be confusing to keep straight which one is Balak and which one is Balaam, because their names are similar, but Balak is the king of Moab. So we'll just call him King Balak, and that should help. 
So King Balak doesn't know Balaam personally, but he's heard of him. Balaam was a famous seer or sorcerer or prophet. He's known internationally for his ability to use dreams and omens to predict the future, and more importantly to King Balak for his ability to pronounce powerful blessings and curses. By the way, in 1967, there was an archaeological discovery of some non-Israelite texts dating from about 800 BC that also mentioned the same person, Balaam, son of Beor, who was a seer and could communicate with the gods in dreams. So there are sources outside of the Bible that also attest to this being a real person, which is just cool. King Balak thinks, if I can hire this guy to come and curse Israel, then my people will be good to go. We'll be able to defeat Israel in battle, and we won't have to fear for our safety. This sounds a bit odd to us, but in an ancient person's mindset, a blessing was a speech act that would actually tangibly bring about good in someone's life, as opposed to cursing, which would actually tangibly bring about harm. So hiring Balaam was hiring like a professional mercenary or hitman, except that Balaam didn't kill anyone, he just cursed them. He's like a spiritual hitman. So King Balak sends messengers to go get Balaam and hire him. Let's keep reading. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with them. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God says to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Okay, so King Balak's messengers arrive in northern Mesopotamia and find Balaam and ask him to go back with them to Moab to curse Israel. But Balaam wants to consult with God about it first before he decides whether or not to take the job. God speaks to Balaam and says, no, don't go. Don't curse the Israelites because they're blessed. They're blessed by God and God doesn't want anyone to curse them. Blessing and cursing were serious business because they were thought to be so effective. And because Balaam's job is to be a seer and a spokesperson for God, he can't just curse whoever he wants to. It has to come from God. So in the morning, Balaam turns down the job. He says, sorry, I'm not interested. God said no. And the messengers returned to King Balak empty-handed. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I cannot do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. King Balak sends more messengers, lots of them, high-ranking ones, to persuade Balaam to come. They say, we'll make it worth your while. This will be a very lucrative assignment for you. Just come. Balaam's response might seem noble at first, but even if Balaam gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, it's probably code for wink, wink, yeah, this is going to cost you a fortune. Enticed by the potential of a huge payout, Balaam says, give me the night to think about it, and he has a second encounter with God. 
This time God says, fine, you can go, but do only what I tell you. Which raises the question, why is God allowing Balaam to go this time? Is God really going to allow someone to curse Israel? We will see. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. God lets Balaam go, but he isn't actually happy about it. God knows Balaam's heart and that Balaam can be easily swayed by King Balak to do or say whatever Balak wants in order to get the money that he's after, even if it means betraying the commands of Yahweh. So we read that the angel of the Lord stands in the middle of the road to prevent Balaam from going after all, but Balaam doesn't see it. The scene is incredibly ironic because Balaam is supposed to be this spiritual superstar who's able to consult with gods whenever he wants and whose words hold tremendous power and can affect the fate of whole nations. He's internationally known for these abilities. He's supposed to be the best of the best in his field. And yet he doesn't see God when God is standing right in front of him. And to make things worse, his donkey, which is known for being a really dumb animal, does see God. Up until this point, we're pretty impressed with Balaam's resume. He's not an Israelite. He's not actually a follower of Yahweh. And he uses practices of divination and omens that were forbidden for Israelites in the law. His methods weren't great, but the outcomes spoke for themselves. God had graciously met with him and spoken with him, even though Balaam was not a good dude. But here, Balaam is exposed for who he truly is. He's supposed to be a seer, but he's totally blind. He can't see God when God is standing right in front of him, and his donkey can. And then here's the best part. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, you've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. The donkey talks. This is one of the most bizarre miracles in the whole Bible, and I love it. It's a real-life Dr. Doolittle. God opens the mouth of a donkey and allows a human and an animal to have a conversation. 
Now, this would have been just as weird or improbable in an ancient person's mindset as it is to us. They didn't have all the technological advances and scientific findings that we had today, but even they knew that animals do not speak in human languages. This was 100% an act of God like any other miracle. And this really puts Balaam in his place because Balaam had built up this great reputation for his ability to be the mouthpiece of God. He had this unique access to God, and he took great pride in it. And then God takes him down a few pegs by being like, yeah, I can use you to speak my messages, but guess what? I can also use a dumb donkey. I can use whoever I want to speak my words. God can talk to anyone, and God can use anyone to speak for him. It doesn't mean they're morally superior to anyone else or even that they have a right relationship with God. Balaam surely didn't. But God is making the point that he is sovereign and he can use anyone and anything to speak for him if he chooses. God uses this third encounter with Balaam as a warning to make sure Balaam knows that if he's going to go ahead and meet with Balak and accept this hit job, he better be prepared to obey and to only say what God commands him to say. No betrayal. So with this new fear of God instilled in him, Balaam continues on to Moab. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. He's so excited that Balaam is finally coming that he travels to meet him at the border, which to Balaam is a great honor to be greeted by a king. Balak says to Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied. He sounds cranky. Doesn't he sound cranky? He's probably still feeling a little stupid on account of the whole donkey incident. But I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. He says, I'm here, but just so we're clear, I can only say what God allows. Before, his emphasis on only speaking what God allows was a source of pride, showing off that, the fact that he has special access and that God talks to him. Now he's been humbled a bit, so while there's maybe still an air of that going on, he's also pretty determined at this point that he's not going to mess with Yahweh. He's committed to only speaking what Yahweh allows, being obedient, and he reiterates that here. Then Balaam went with Balak. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the officials. The next morning, Balak took Balaam to see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. Okay, Balak holds a large feast in Balaam's honor, and then they roll up their sleeves and get to work. Balak takes Balaam to a vantage point where they can see the outskirts of the Israelite camp, and here they follow what was common practice for pagan sacrifices. They build seven altars, and they sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. Those were the most valuable sacrificial animals, which shows King Balak really wanted to get it right and impress Yahweh so that he would look favorably on them and give them a really good curse to pronounce on Israel. Balaam consults with God again, and this is the message God gives to him to share with King Balaam and all of the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse them, those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Yikes, this is not going well for King Balak. 
but he's persistent. He sees this as only a minor setback and he wants to try again. He prepares another set of sacrifices in a different location and hopes that it will produce different results. God meets with Balaam again and this was his second message for King Balak and the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke his message. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. And then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Balaam answered, did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? Balaam's like, listen, Balak, Yahweh can't be manipulated or dictated to. He is not like other gods. These sacrifices aren't changing his mind. Yahweh is making it very clear that his desire is to bless Israel, and he's going to continue to bless them. At this point, King Balak says, well, then don't curse them or bless them. If you've got nothing mean and nasty to say, don't say anything at all. That's how it goes, right? King Balak's plan is not going to work. He can't manipulate God's will. And in fact, this second message from God is confirmation of Balak's greatest fear. God says that Israel will indeed wipe out their enemies. They'll be like a lion devouring their prey. And yet, King Balak is a stubborn little fella, and he decides to give it one more go. Third time's the charm, he hopes. So King Balak takes Balaam to a new place, saying, Come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. Sure worth a try. So they build more altars and sacrifice more animals, and from this place they can clearly see Israel's whole camp, not just the outskirts. So as they look out over the tribes of Israel, we read this. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him and he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel, like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water, their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. Oh boy. Three times Balaam's donkey was trapped between doing what the angel of the Lord wanted and what Balaam wanted. Now three times Balaam has been trapped between giving King Balak the message he wants and the message that Yahweh gives him to say. And what does Yahweh have him say? In general, Balaam announces that Israel is blessed. Israel is going to enjoy God's protection from their enemies, and they're going to flourish. But if we take a closer look, we see that this is not just a general blessing, but is actually a reaffirming of the promises God made to Abraham. 
In Balaam's first message, he talks about Israel's large population, which shows the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to give him descendants. In both of the first two messages, he talks about Israel's special relationship with Yahweh as a people God has chosen to bless. We see in the second message that God is present with Israel. He's with them, and he's invested in their well-being because he's their king. And then in the third message, Balaam talks about how Israel is going to prosper in the land promised to them by God. Descendants, special covenant relationship, and land. Yahweh will keep his promises to Abraham. This is why the story is included at this point in Numbers. The Israelites are beginning their conquest of the promised land, and the strange episode given to us from the perspective of Israel's enemies reaffirms that Israel is going to succeed in their endeavors because God is behind them and is working out his promises to them. Israel's victories are going to be further proof of God's power. To mess with Israel is going to be to mess with God. The last part of Balaam's third message, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed, is another direct allusion, an obvious parallel to what God said to Abraham when he made a covenant with him. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. King Balak is so mad. He's like, Balaam, you're fired. You're literally doing the opposite of what I've hired you to do. You're going home with no pay, and you can blame that on Yahweh. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of my Lord, and I must say only what the Lord says. Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. Balaam responds, hey man, I'm just doing what I set up front the whole time I'm going to do. You can't fire me, I quit. So yeah, I'll go, but before I do, get a load of this. You want to know if you stand a fighting chance against Israel? The answer is no. Balaam proceeds to rattle off four more messages, the first being a cryptic message about a future king of Israel who will conquer Israel's enemies. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. Balaam's messages about Israel's king sometimes refers to Yahweh, sometimes to a human king like Saul or David. And here there's probably a messianic layer to it as well. And then in his last three messages, it's all just destruction. Israel's enemies, including Moab, will be destroyed. Chapter 24, and this whole narrative ends with verse 25. Then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way. Balaam goes home, King Balak goes home, this whole ordeal is over, the end. The story is so interesting. I hope that as you're reading these chapters as a literary unit and picturing it play out in your head, that you get a real sense for these over-the-top characters and see how it's dramatic but funny because there's so much irony. We've already said that Balaam is supposed to be this super prophet. He says of himself in his messages, this is the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, whose eyes are opened. And yet when the angel of the Lord is standing right in front of him in the road, he doesn't see it. He was totally blind. 
He was bested by his dumb donkey who had more clarity of vision than he. And then there's King Balak who goes to extreme lengths to try to secure a curse for Israel. He hires the best professional curse man and he's willing to pay him a lot of money. He does all the sacrifices just right, putting on these elaborate productions in three different locations, hoping to maybe, just maybe, manipulate God into giving him what he wants. And yet in the end, all his efforts only backfire. And he's told over and over and over how categorically blessed Israel is and will continue to be. Balaam's messages are the most explicit blessings about Israel in the whole Pentateuch. As Israel is beginning their conquest into the promised land, God wants to make something really, really clear. And he uses an enemy king and a heathen prophet to do it. He makes it clear that Moab, like any other enemy nation of Israel, doesn't stand a chance. Why? Because they're not actually up against Israel. They're up against God. And God desires to bless his people. As we end this series, I want to give us a few questions to reflect on. Maybe take some time today or this week to reflect. If you're in a D group that's discussing the sermon series, you'll reflect there as well. Number one, how difficult is it for God to get your attention? If God was standing in the middle of the road, would you see him? Sometimes we get so busy and distracted that I wonder if we miss God just as easily as Balaam did. If God wanted to get your attention about something, would he have to go to extreme measures like enlisting the help of a talking donkey to do it? Or do you have time and space carved out where you regularly talk to God and hear from him? Are your eyes and ears open to what he might be wanting to say and do in and around you? Second question, do you believe that God desires to bless you? We've said throughout this whole series that God desires to bless his people. Maybe that's easy for you to see when it comes to his desire to bless Israel in the Old Testament. But what about you? Do you believe that God desires to bless you? If your honest gut reaction to that question is no, I'd like you to reflect on that. Why do you think that might be? Maybe this is something that would be helpful to talk through with a pastor or a counselor or a trusted friend. And then last question, where might you need to focus on obedience in order to open yourself up to more of God's blessing in your life? We said last week that God desires obedience from his people and that his blessing is tied to obedience. We know that God blesses us all the time, whether or not we're following him or being obedient to him. Every breath we breathe is a blessing from God. And yet, Scripture makes it clear, and we'll see this in our reading this week in Deuteronomy, that if we want to experience God's best for us, that comes through obedience to God's word and to his ways. Is there an area of your life that maybe isn't aligned with what God would want for you? Where might you need to reorient yourself and embrace obedience to God in order to experience the fullness of what he has for you? God desires to bless his people. He is with you. He is for you. He loves you. Even when you fail, he won't abandon you. Let's pay attention to the things he's wanting to say to us. Let's notice the ways he has blessed and is continuing to bless us. And let's respond to God's blessing with wholehearted devotion, obedience, and love. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much 
for even the weirdest stories in the Bible because they show us your heart, God, and your desire is to bless your people. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can consider ourselves people of God. I pray that you will help us to reflect, that you will speak to us however you want to speak, God, that our eyes will be open, our ears will be opened to receive what you have for us, that we'll believe that you really do desire to bless us. And I do pray, God, that we will respond to your blessing in our lives with more and more devotion, more and more obedience, and ultimately, God, more and more love for you. We know that's what you want. We love you, God.